Hello, and I'm Suzanne Tavel, Global Head of Responsible Investment for Stepstone, and your host for today's podcast. With me is Ryan Ramsey, a principal with our infrastructure and real assets team. And Ryan is our real asset specialist with a deep experience across the natural capital sector. So perfectly positioned for our discussion today. It's always a pleasure to collaborate with Ryan on projects. And this podcast is based on a recently published white paper titled An Introduction to Carbon Credits and Offsets. And this has been a great project. So our objective today is for you, the listener, to finish this podcast and leave with a clearer understanding of the carbon market, including carbon credits and offsets. We're going to cover off everything from the jargon, the market structure, concerns, investment considerations. But at the end of the day, this is really a taster. And should we have sufficiently whetted your appetite, we encourage you uh, to read the full paper, which is available on our website. So with no further ado, let's let's start off with a, um, a real sort of foundation question. So Ryan, can you explain for us what actually is the carbon market and how does offsetting fit into it? Sure. Uh, thanks, Suzanne. And, you know, it's a pleasure to be talking to you today about this uh, topic, you know, something that we um, find really exciting. Uh, so, you know, carbon markets are effectively a market that trades in units of carbon. Uh, the, the measure of that is tonnes of, of CO2 equivalent. Um, and the units that trade are effectively referred to as uh, credits, carbon credits. Uh, and so if you think about that market on the supply side, um, you've got uh, abatement, um, which creates the credit. That in itself is a revenue opportunity for that um, side of, of the market. And then on the demand side, you've got emitters who are looking to take that credit and, and use, use it against their emissions, um, which creates a, a cost on, on the demand side. Uh, and it's that process of buying a credit claiming the abatement um, and then reducing your emissions um, for that particular um, entity. Um, it's that process that, that is referred to as, as offsetting. And, and as a result, credits um, are often called credits or offsets. And, and that term is you know, used interchangeably. Excellent. All right. So with that as our basis, let's just run through some jargon because the space is absolutely chock full of it. Um, so some rapid fire definitions from, from you. Carbon project. So carbon project is a project which is, re is registered with a, a registry. Um, that registry uh, really, you know, makes the rules um, and administers all of the credits that are um, that are generated through through it. So think of it like a share registry, which is managing all the share trades. This manages all the carbon trades, but it also um, you know determines all the rules as to how the credits are you know issued. Excellent. So and that body is that a sort of a regulated body, or that's sort of a just a professional practitioner body? Yeah. It, it depends on whether it's uh, a an emissions trading system or the voluntary market, or what we feel as compliance versus the voluntary market. And um, you know, in compliance markets, it's typically a regulator. Although the relegator, the regulator, um, can delegate that to a, a, a sort of a, an outsource registry. Those outsource registries, um, which uh, exist in voluntary markets, becoming clearer. So, <laughs> what's an avoidance credit? 
So an avoidance credit is uh, effectively an, an avoided emission. Um, so think of um, a, a credit which is, you know, the abatement which has um, been generated through that uh, project um, relates to um, avoiding emissions. And that um, distinction is, is relevant because we've seen the market sort of evolve into two types of credit types, the other being a removal credit. And that removal, um, the abatement there is actually um, taking um, CO2 out of the atmosphere, um, so removing it from the atmosphere. Um, and so now we've seen the sort of the market distinguish into those two types of credits. So abatement as in reducing what could have been emitted versus removal, sucking it out. Exactly. I think the, the bit that we, we tend to forget is just how long the carbon dioxide s stands in the atmosphere or sits in the atmosphere. And the fact that we're dealing with two problems. We're trying to add less to our carbon stock, while at the same time, we're trying to reduce our carbon stock. Um, so additionality, because this is sort of interlinked, isn't it? It is, yeah. Additionality, I think, is probably the biggest area of debate in carbon markets and you know what this um, term means is you know what would have happened um, in the absence of a carbon credit so for, you know, for a carbon credit to be additional the idea is that without the carbon credit revenue it wouldn't have occurred i.e we are changing practices and that changing you know we're being rewarded for a change in practice rather than being rewarded with a carbon credit for something that would have happened irrespective of the carbon credit. Yeah, so as we can see, quite a tricky concept in terms of the would have, could have, should have. Um, but obviously, I'm sure there's there's a fair number of rules around that. Look, there are. Um, as you say, it's, you know, it, it sort of leads into one of the, the other areas um, that, that, you know, I think is, is topical, which is around baselines. What would have happened... Um, in the absence of the project, and that's sort of your measuring stick um, that you're compared against. And um, and so, you know, there are lots of rules around how we're determining those baselines. Each registry has, you know, rules for individual project types. Um, but ultimately, um, you know, it is an estimation. So, yeah. um, you know, as with any estimation, there is, there is, you know, estimation error. All right. So let's shift to two terms that we hear people use interchangeably, but then don't actually mean the same thing. So carbon neutral versus net zero. Yeah, as you say, they they sound the same, but that they are definitely not. So carbon neutral um, is the process of just using offsets um, to um, and any type of offset to um, so that your emissions um, are, are neutral. Uh, and now that differs, you know, from net zero, where um, your gross emissions have to be um, offset through subtractions um, or removals from the atmosphere. So effectively what you're doing with carbon neutral, you can use avoidance credits. With net zero, you have to use those removal credits so that your, your net emissions are actually uh, equal to zero. And that's sort of the gold standard for, and, and is ultimately what we're talking about, the, the one and a half or the two degrees in a climate scenario it's getting to net zero. So there is no increase in emissions into the atmosphere. And ideally, um, you know, somewhere less than that, where we can start taking, you know, uh, greenhouse gases on a net basis out of our atmosphere beyond that. So um, the credits that we've talked about can have sort of two origins, nature-based versus technology-based. Walk us through this. Yeah, so uh, start with technology-based Effectively, this is adopting new or alternative technologies that either 
um, well, that really reduce emissions or potentially um, can also um, remove carbon from the atmosphere. So, you know, renewables is something that everyone's, you know, I assume is familiar with. It's a technology-based solution where we're going from, you know, fossil fuel-based um, electricity generation to wind and solar, you know, combined with batteries and other, you know, forms of storage. So that's, that's a technology solution. Um, Nature-based is using our natural landscapes, think, you know, soil, forests, other vegetation, wetlands, peatlands. So changing the way we manage those um, those natural capital assets to um, either reduce emissions that are coming from them um, or actually um, remove carbon by sequestering um, carbon in those uh, natural capital assets. Excellent. Post the Kyoto Protocol, we see these two markets, the compliance or regulatory market and the voluntary market start to um, emerge. Um, Talk to us a little more about these markets, but in particular, how their market structure impacts on the pricing of carbon. Because at the end of the day, this is the key issue of interest for any investor. Yeah, so I'll start by sort of summarising where the two markets are at now. Um, Compliance um, markets, which is effectively emissions trading systems or ETS, um, they they cover about 17% of global greenhouse gases. So, um, you know, still a long way to go in terms of coverage of those uh, of the compliance market and so voluntary is filling in the gap uh, between the the 17 percent and you know i guess potentially up to 100 percent, which is where ultimately uh, we need to get to but um you know if you look at then the trading volume of the relative you know those two different markets um the compliance side is about 450 times the size of the voluntary So if you look at the the two different markets, um, compliance markets, um, demand is really driven by legislation. So, um, you know, governments will legislate specific trajectory of emissions that involves um, typically, you know, a cut in uh, emissions each year. Um, And it's that reduction, that scheduled reduction in emissions, which is driving demand for Credits. Um, you compare that to a voluntary market where it's a individual organisation's um, voluntary um, target that is set based on engagement with its stakeholders. Now, those stakeholders may not see it as voluntary. They might think it absolutely compulsory, but ultimately there's no sort of legal consequence um, if, if those targets are not achieved. But there could be very strong reputational um consequences there could be consequences in financial markets you know if your shareholders are saying these are the targets that we you know you've agreed with us we do expect you to go and deliver them um, there's the diff- key difference there is um, the registries or the methods and protocols that are used to generate credits are covered by a regulator um, whereas in the voluntary market it, there is no regulator there and so there are perceptions around quality of you know of some of those credits and, and then what that sort of leads to is in, in the voluntary market, the importance of quality becomes really important because buyers of credits want to buy credits where um, they don't face reputational risk. Uh, and so we're really seeing, you know, from the, the in the voluntary market on the demand side, much greater focus on the quality of credits that are being purchased. And, you know, I guess lastly to round that out is sort of pricing. What does all of that mean? Well, I guess in, in, in compliance, we've seen generally much higher prices because the, the targets that are being set uh, to reduce emissions in those jurisdictions has been 
um, more aggressive than what's happened in voluntary. Um, and then within the voluntary space itself, we're seeing a divergence in pricing between you know credits that are perceived as being of a high quality and, and those who are perceived as being as a low quality. So what we know for sure is that the demand for carbon credits is going up, as we've talked about the supply is arguably undersized in the voluntary market and potentially even in in the compliance markets. So, you know, traders would look at this and go, constraints, constrained supply, large demand, carbon prices, surely they've got to, they've got to go, go up. What, is that logic sound or, or not? We think so. Um, I think most participants in the market expect prices to be higher. Uh, in fact, I think prices need to be higher. If we're going to achieve you know, a one and a half degree or even a two degree scenario, it requires significantly higher carbon prices in the voluntary market in particular and, and in a lot of compliance markets around the world if it's going to drive the you know the, the change in behaviors um, or change in you know business models and um, adoption of technology that are needed to ultimately drive all of that direct abatement and meet uh, meet net zero so and, and if you look at the you know the projections that various different um, you know international financial institutions have um, you know published and it's you know you've got carbon prices of 75 200 300 dollars a ton if you're looking out 10 20 30 years they're the sort of prices that that are estimated to be required to achieve that one and a half degree scenario. We're a long way from that. Um, you know, European markets certainly the most advanced from a um, you know, the, the, as a compliance market, um, and you know prices have traded up to 100 euros a ton. If you reduce the amount of emissions you're allowed by call it five percent per year, it gets harder and harder to to achieve that, um, and that drives up the price of of carbon in those markets. So that's the demand side, right? And, you know, the preference is for direct emission reduction, but offset, you know, can be used in a complementary way to, to achieve that. And then on you have supply, you know, like any market, there is a marginal cost uh, of supply. Um, and so the, 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 the easier um, project um, or the easier abatement tasks um, that, that can generate these credits, you know, have, have um, been where, you know, uh, people have started in terms of you know investment. It gets harder and harder from here. Uh, and then overlaying that, you've got increasing or improving standards, um, which is you know tightening up you know how many credits that might be awarded, for example. Um, and so that you know those two factors combine to you know constrain supply, or at least at you know at a given price. Obviously, higher pricing incentivizes more supply. So um, you know putting all of that together. Um, we do, you know, I think the, the general view of the market is that, you know, prices do uh, are, are likely to increase um, and over time, but, you know, it's not going to be a straight line either. Um, and we've seen that in, in carbon markets to date where, um, like sort of any market, there is, there is volatility along the way. I want to just shift gears a bit because it would be remiss of us not to address the fact that there is a voice out there that argues that um, carbon credits really, uh, in fact, are, are not effectively addressing climate change and they're not helping to solve it, um, which really is sort of diametrically opposed to, to, to the argument that you've just presented. So. Uh, let, let's just address this for our listeners. 
Yeah, so I think there's um, an ideological view that offsets just allow emitters to continuing emitting. Instead of reducing their emissions, they can just buy offsets. But I don't think that is a, a fair um, characterization of what offsets are trying to do. I think um, there is no real credible pathway to net zero that doesn't involve offsets in some form. Net zero is, is net, it's not gross zero. And mm. so, you know, most industries um, are going to have a, a residual tail of emissions, which they can't get to, to absolute zero. So, so there's a need for those removal credits to get to net zero um, at the back end of the market. And then in the interim, we could just go out and implement every direct um, emission reduction project at any cost. Um, and that would greatly accelerate the, the transition to net zero. The problem is, is that the cost of uh, a lot of that abatement is um, much higher than offsets and also much higher than we think the public can can support. Uh, the, the transition at zero has to be done in a way that's sustainable, not both, not just environmentally, but socially. Um, you know, we're in an environment now where cost of living pressures, you know, are a, are a major issue um, around the world. And that that sort of burn the house approach would um, be multiply that factor, you know, many times if we were to go down that path. In the last six months where you've had um, the integrity really come under the integrity of the credits come under quite a lot of scrutiny. But um, talk to us about sort of we don't need to get into to the nitty-gritty on specific um, examples but like what was the general theme and or what was growing wrong that the credit integrity should have been threatened so um the criticisms to date have been you know i think really around um baselines and additionality um you know i think you know that that fundamentally has been the the the, the, the major area of concern um there's a lot of other, you know, elements which are sort of, you know, more detailed. But ultimately, you know, what would have happened if if this project wasn't in place versus what did happen? It's the gap between those two, which, um, you know, has has come under scrutiny, in particular for a couple of, you know, um, types of carbon projects. And you know that those baselines, as a result, the way they are determined, um, the way that the um, outcomes of, of measuring the difference between the two, um, how that's verified. Um, you know, I think that's really the area of focus in, in terms of improving the way these carbon projects are working to improve both the environmental outcomes, but also um, importantly, the confidence in offsets, um, because that's that I think is in, integral to their adoption and, and use and delivering on the potential that they offer us. Yeah, 100%. I mean, so so scrutiny actually ends up driving better practice in, in this nascent market. Yeah, so I think scrutiny is good. You know, I think the other element around offsetting, which is really interesting, is it's helping us to um, effectively put a value on on natural assets. Now, that's something that hasn't really happened in the past. One of the you know criticisms around loss of biodiversity and and nature um, ecosystems, you know, which is a, a you know another big issue on top of carbon, um, is the the development of carbon markets has allowed us to put a put a value on some of the ecosystem services that these natural assets are providing. Um, you've got biodiversity credits, you know, coming down the line as well. Um, and I think that provides alignment and incentive to actually change the, the way we're managing these assets and recognising the value that they're actually um, 
you know, deriving for society in a, in a more sustainable way. Um, you know, looking at deforestation is just one example where, you know, deforestation is, has been a known problem for a long period of time. And, you know, regulation, geopolitical pressure, the reality is it just, it hasn't worked. It's still a big problem um, despite all the effort that has been put into it. And if you think about, you know, why is that? Well, most of the deforestation that occurs globally is in emerging economies where the incentive to, you know, to, to leverage that resource um, and find a, you know, effectively lifting communities out of, out of poverty. So what, a, what putting a price on, on nature does through carbon um, in, in this circumstance is it actually provides an alternative incentive. You can have the environmental outcome, but you can also have the sort of financial outcome for that community. I think that alignment of interest and, you know, and, and self-interest you know, is what we think um, is more likely to actually solve the issue around deforestation than, than simply telling you know, um, these communities in you know, low socioeconomic communities that they just can't leverage a resource when the rest of the world, you know, the developed world has you know, over a long period of time leveraged those resources to you know, build the you know, successful economies and wealth that they have. You know, that's, that I think is a, a, a more equitable solution to that particular problem. Yeah, no, it gets, gets really quite exciting when we think about all the nature-based opportunities in the bank and the fact, as you say, that so many of the revenue lines attached to these assets have just had big zeros in them before, um, you know, and now be it with carbon credits, biodiversity credits going forward, we start to appropriately value these assets. So clearly that sounds like an, an interesting investment opportunity for people looking for mispriced assets. Yeah, I think it, absolutely it is, uh, you know, looking at, you know, land use, um, agriculture, um, you know, are a you know material contributor to uh, to, to climate change, um, and and you know depending on sort of which numbers you use, I think globally the numbers sort of around the thirteen percent um, based on the, the latest figures available. Um, but if you look at the amount of capital that is flowing into nature-based versus technology-based, it's a small fraction. So, you know, it is it is underfunded. Um, and I think where that's interesting is that if you're an investor, the additionality of your capital um, in terms of the impact it can have is much greater. And so, you know, that is, I think, a trend we're starting to see, you know, where, you know, some you know, some of our clients, for example, have, have gone from focusing on, on the renewable space and sort of industrial energy transition, which, you know, we've seen, you know, you know, some very large funds raised and a lot of capital flows in that space. Now starting to look at, okay, how, how do we, you know, leverage our capital um, in another area that, that needs a lot of investment? Um, and that's one of the, you know, the attractions of, of natural capital is, you know, it's relatively underfunded, which creates opportunity. Yeah, super exciting. So one of the, the topics that I did want to address is we've talked about sort of best practice in terms of underscoring markets. Now, there is the body, um, the Science-Based Target Initiative or SBTI, which really is regarded as the, the, the bastion of good practice um, for companies that are moving their businesses to reducing emissions and setting net zero targets. How does a group like that consider um, offsets? So if you, if you look at the SBTI framework, 
uh, there's a couple of components. One is you reduce your emissions based on a scientific trajectory to get as close to net zero as is sort of technically possible. Uh, and then you use removals to go from that, that uh, to effect effectively offset that, um, that tail of emissions, which cannot be reduced to absolute zero. So that's the, that's the net in the net zero component of, of the SBTI framework. And then in between today and that sort of residual target, um, the, uh, the target has to be met, as I said, through um, direct emission reductions, not buying offsets. But what you have to remember is that um, from you know today until that point in time, these businesses still have an emissions profile. And so um, offsetting to also achieve carbon neutrality is complementary to the SBTI framework. And so, you know, in, in those circumstances, um, you know, should those companies um, just continue to operate as is uh, and, and follow that, that trajectory waiting for the technology cost to come down or should they contribute to climate change mitigation by buying offsets to, you know, play their part in the interim um, while they're waiting for, you know, the, the viability of those technologies to, to play out. And, and that's where the way we think about offsetting is it's for those companies in particular, it's contributing to mitigation rather than just waiting for you know, technology to solve it sometime in the future. And as we've discussed, you know, it helps drive really a, uh, a price discovery, right, on, on carbon, which, which in turn, you know, al allows the development of further applications um, of carbon, carbon reduction technologies and products and services. Um, so clearly all part of the, the circle. So for our listeners, there, there you have it, um, a whistle-stop tour of some of the key considerations around carbon markets and credits. Um, in our view, as you've heard, this is a topic that's only going to get bigger and the role of carbon markets ever more important. Um, we know we need a price on carbon to change behaviour and I think we're all agreed that behaviour has to change if we're going to hold temperature rise to well below that two degrees. Um, so as a reminder, if you'd like to learn more, please read the full white paper that's available on the Stepstone Group website. And this podcast, RPM, is available wherever podcasts are available. Thank you. Thank you.